It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition, one by the way of our own doing, uh, that of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring, in reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between creator and creation, should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be here. This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk and restore relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I, I I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon. Quite a, it sure <laughs> is, isn't it? I, I almost forgot that. Um, but, you know, I, I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is, this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey just about 13 years ago um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the, in the south, the northern south and the deep south, asking the question the whole way as we retrace the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in, in the, um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that if I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, all you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the Scripture to find what is 
how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel? Because I think at, at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes I think we as the church sort of leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've, you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've, you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God. God is therefore through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross forgiven us. And, and that reconciliation process begins. And, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design to be sure. But God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden. But, but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as an end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us. Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research, was what I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher, because um, it, it, when, you, when you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word tov is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It's not necessarily saying, God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying, goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what the perfection as God would, um, would, would have it. Perfection, as we've been taught through the Greeks, actually is about us becoming perfect, or God's creation being perfect, and, they're, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God and also in the relationship between men and women, and humanity and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked, there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, But the reality is is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships that then become well as well. So God um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to... And while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, 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 the large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation 
only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, our, with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the Scripture. Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia, and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire, just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people crucified at one, in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low. And when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news, not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that, we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation here at this edition of Lifeline, our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Is part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand reconciliation between creation and creator, and seeing the the need or or comprehending the transformative power of salvation, that it hasn't gone far enough. And by that I mean um, salvation is the beginning point. Then there is this matter of 
sanctification. So we recognize sin, the impact of sin. We then, through the power of Christ's blood, become saved. That salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the, the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K. And that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other. And therefore, the turmoil that we're seeing, even right now as we speak, would, would perhaps look very differently, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you a story. I was, I was writing Genesis, the uh, chapter 2 of the book, on a glimpse of Shalom. And I was writing and, and researching, actually, Genesis 1. And some, I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing, and actually weeping. I was weeping and worshiping. Because I realized that uh, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors that um, one of those sets of authors was a, was a company of priests. These priests were leaving. They were exiting the Babylonian exile. As such, that, you know, so I've heard that. I've heard that term before. About, you know, they were exiled. Okay, they didn't get to live where they wanted to live. But it's much more than that. They went through war. Sons died. Mothers died. Husbands. Brothers died. Then they were taken away from their land made to live in Babylon, in a place that was not their own. In that land, they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God. Only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, and they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. I, I, it hit me. I was like, this is revolutionary for them because they have just spent 70 years in oppression and then it hit me wait a minute i've never heard that the writers of genesis 1 not 2 but genesis 1 they were coming out of an oppressed context they were they were they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors and i think that that's actually really truly one of the biggest issues Craig, is that when we study the Scripture, when we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the Scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context, and then, you know, we jump to application and jump to interpretation before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the first place. Sure, and I, that's, that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion and then go find a piece of Scripture that's going to support your conclusion. <laughs> exactly. And, and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of, of these people having been enslaved for 70 years. 
turning around and saying, God said, let all humanity have dominion. And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. That those words till and keep mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion, is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that, 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 that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie. So the issue here then is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, right. uh, or, or others rather, but also how we see ourselves. Right, that's exactly right. We, 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 have, we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth. Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating the way they see God because their perception is that God thinks less of them. That All of a sudden we've set up second and third class citizens and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven and uh, then there's a second and third class citizens that uh, are not so. And all of a sudden then I think that that diminished viewpoint of of ourself is a natural flow out of a, a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us. Yes, and you know, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod. Well, that's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. It's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of, of a very corrupt king um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar. And it's the, it's the uh, context of of the Roman Empire, which had just um, done 2,000 uh, uh, crucifixions and 500 every day after that, just a few years before this, the, right, the, the period when this text place takes place. So that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning. It's actually, and then Jesus is born. And in and, and Mark, we see Jesus say, repent and believe the, ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people starting with the Jews and working his way out. And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also it, it requires relationship with each other that that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other. And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of, of cause uh, for, for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got 
multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors and you have physicians and you have thinkers and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue collar worker to the white collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government thinking it's just a dirty place to be to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we, we certainly even see evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and, and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles. And so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at to get today. We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absent absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part uh, can, can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Uh, Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, Listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles, and and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder... There seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and and get it addressed at at multiple layers, and the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined, as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church. Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it 
um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in 360 B.C., and in The Republic 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the Republic in a different way. So then flash forward to about 1453 A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at what its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if, so an explorer comes to him and says, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm going to go exploring, and I need your blessing. And the Pope says, I got you, got my blessing, but even, don't ball one up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized, and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So where we get that, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you, well, you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top, and then uh, Asians, and then um, red, he called them red, um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we start to see different races um, in different ways. And then we start to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the Three-Fifths Compromise, that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then, in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America, and that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed struggling to have the full image of God the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement. And of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble right, right. codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting that it doesn't say we, we have determined we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves, but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity. And certainly from a biblical perspective, I think we would say that that comes from God. That's and yet, exactly even right. from then, we have managed to you know, make the make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since. Yes, that's exactly right. And so what you get is you get the Civil War where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have 
in the image of God in them realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the civil rights movement that, that again fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement or the current movement for the black, for a, of black struggle is that the civil rights movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit grandma, it hit baby, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution then to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is today, the people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job, it's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority, and to stand with them and to say, yes, we are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on. You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America and, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank, an, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation and, and uh, we'll, we'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now you've got to do 90 years in jail. That's exactly right. And I mean, and more than that, we've actually, now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in 19, in the early 1970s, I believe it was 1972, he said, we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually, that, that was a dog whistle. That was buzzword. That was a way post-Civil Rights Act to control and confine black, black communities. Because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, and they would have actually gone down into the South, and they would have, they would have focused on, um, on Southern women, because Southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum, the antebellum South up to, up to present, because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and, and their brothers go and... Um, and well, let's just say it, and, and rape their quote-unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, through on, on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetize themselves by, by drugging themselves. But, of course, that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing 
on black communities. And whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even we see the, the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact that while on the surface, oh, it sounds great. we got a, we got a war on poverty and we got a war on drugs and they don't realize in every war there are casualties and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people. The very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating read, and I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights, and again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Multnomah Press, and again, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I know during the campaign cycle here, we've heard a lot made about making America great again. But my first guest, I think, would argue that what really challenges us is not simply a notion of making America great again. And I'm not sure what that means nor what that process is. But I can tell you this. If we take into consideration the observations of de Tocqueville back a century plus ago into America and her greatness at that time, let me suggest that perhaps the greater issue at foot here, the bigger challenge that is faced by this nation today is not an effort toward making America great again, but rather making America righteous again. If we can make America righteous again, then the making of America great again will naturally flow. Our first guest is the editor of First Things, an ecumenical Christian journal based out of New York City. He is a theologian, has a Ph.D. in religious ethics from Yale University, and the author of a brand-new book just released by our friends at Regnery Publishing called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Dr. R.R. Reno, great to have you on the program. It's good to be with you, Craig. What about this, this idea? I mean, that making America great again, I mean, it's, that's a noble idea, but that seems to kind of be the end game. It really doesn't give us any insight in terms of what is the game plan to take us there. Well, not just that, but great. I mean, great presumably is more than just richer, right? I mean, we have to have some noble ideal to which we're striving if, it, if the greatness is to be more than just more stuff. Um, so we need to have some vision in mind of what it means to have, to have a great society. And, and I, in my book, I try to make a case that we need to have some transcendent orientation as a people, and that in our history, that transcendent orientation has been provided by Christianity. And so we need to renew, or uh, I use the term resurrect, the Christian character of our society if we're going to get out of the troubled state that we're in. And, of course, the irony is um, many of the great observers and thinkers out there that have pondered America and her quote-unquote greatness down through um, the last couple of centuries have, yes, pointed to uh, industrialization and our economic proudness, things of this sort. But they've also highlighted quite vigorously America's sense of compassion and integrity, our, our work ethic, hard work, responsibility, all of these ideas that are really the underpinnings of, I think, what is the ultimate um, product 
of this sense of greatness, and that is that from our sense of compassion and in hard work and integrity and responsibility and all these other deals and, and embracing of freedom and all that that means flows the end result or the benefit of economic greatness. But absent all of these other points that I just mentioned, I have to wonder if economic greatness is even possible anymore. <laughs> no, you're quite right. I mean, you mentioned Alexis de Tocqueville at the outset, and he was very worried about the way in which a democratic culture tends towards mediocrity, and not just mediocrity, but a kind of license and, um, you know, a lack of a lack of vigor. And maybe maybe we're kind of experiencing that today. But he recognized that in the United States, Christianity provided countervailing force. It tended to unify people who are otherwise, you know, um, divided in an individualistic society like ours. It tended to uh, organize people towards sort of the common good. And as you said, it, it generates um, an imperative to lift up, to defend the weak and lift up the poor. And so that's an important part of any healthy society is that we see that we're all in it together and that, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. So that, that helps us recognize that, you know, our neighbor who maybe is not doing so well uh, needs a helping hand. Um, and, you know, too much we live in a society that's very now dominated by a kind of meritocracy. And there's good aspects of that. You know, it means that talented people can succeed in our society. But the downside is the tendency to think that achievement is the be-all and end-all of life. And it can make people look up, you know, and not down. Um, and and we, as Christians, you know, we Jesus tells us, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. So we're urged to toe down to the people who are below us, not just up to the people who can pull us higher. I wonder, you use the word unity. Is it as much striving toward making America unified or maybe a deeper, greater sense of solidarity? And I ask that question, Doctor, because we live in a pluralistic society. We've always had differing religious views, certainly differing political parties. There were times throughout American history when there was much that might have divided us in the sense of presenting challenges or roadblocks to unity, and yet we were able somehow to find a sense of solidarity. I think, for example, of World War II. Well, World War II was a battle that was won not by Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or Protestants or Catholics or Jews. It was a war that was won by Americans because we found Mm -hmm. a common enemy that gave us a sense of solidarity. Right. Well, hopefully we can find that we don't need an enemy. I mean, certainly in times of trial, you know, we find our common ground. But, you know, in some ways, we're, aren't we kind of in a time of trial in our country right now? You know, the economic changes of our society over the last generations have put a tremendous amount of stress on the social contract. Um, we see kind of an upsurge in racial tensions in spite of all the progress of the last two generations. And so there's a, you know, I think that this current electoral cycle and the amount of anti-establishment votes, whether it's for Sanders or Trump, does suggest our society is unhappy and that uh, we need to, um, we need to join together in order to 
solve our problems as a country. And and so you're, I think you're right. I mean, in the book, one of the things that I talk about is the false god of diversity. And I mean, it makes some sense at one level. You can't you can't be united with people that you're not present to. And so it makes some sense to think about, well, wait a minute, am I really present to my fellow citizens, you know, to people from different backgrounds? But ultimately, diversity is a means to an end, which is solidarity or unity. And we've lost sight of that. We, we make diversity an end in itself, as if having all, you know, a menu of different folks somehow makes a society one. It doesn't. Uh, we have to be shoulder to shoulder, striving towards a common end in order to be a be a united society. Have we um, of recent generations then, doctor, in your opinion, maybe um, built an idol, made ideology of multiculturalism in a sense then that leaves us with no shared common culture? I mean, I'm thinking that if we have no common ground upon which we can build together because we spend more time elevating or celebrating the difference as opposed to the things that we have in common, that trying to find that common ground upon which then we can move forward as a people, as a nation, becomes very troubling and difficult, doesn't it? I think that's quite right. And, you know, I've become kind of bitter over the last few years about multiculturalism. You know, I travel around and you chat to people, ordinary Americans, from many different backgrounds. You know, most of them are very proud to be American, and, and they feel a sense of common purpose, you know, there's, there are plenty of people who died in Iraq from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and I resent the fact that our leadership class feeds young kids in high school this sort of multicultural ideology that denies them a vocabulary to talk about their shared love of our country. Uh, and I, I think that the leadership class... I'm a little bit, I'm getting more and more cynical. I think that the leadership class does that in part, maybe unwittingly, because uh, if you deny, if you deny ordinary people a kind of shared focal point of unity, then they'll never challenge you in your position of leadership, right? You atomize people, you deracinate them, you disorient them, you, you, you sow grievance, and this, this will, this will prevent people from, from ordinary people from unifying to, you know, take charge of their own country. And I think you see a little protest. We've, we're in the midst of a protest against that whole process, aren't we? Absolutely so. And of course, it's the old adage, you know, divide and conquer. And we know certainly from a, from a spiritual standpoint, the enemy of our souls seeks to do just that. And if uh, Satan can be about the business of dividing us, it is very easy then to find that a house that is divided against itself, what does Scripture tell us? Well, that house will fall. If you've just joined us, our visit today with Dr. R.R. R. Reno. The book is called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. We'll get to the meaning of that title in a moment. also want to spend a bit of time looking at observations made by a number of theologians, one of my favorites, Dr., uh, the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who give warnings about the end result of what it means to live in a uh, postmodern or more specifically put post-Christian society. Is that where we find ourselves today? And how can we return back to our Christian roots? We'll get back to more of our conversation with Dr. R.R. R. Reno as Lifeline continues. <laughs> 